Uh, you can turn in your Bibles or in the bulletin or on your phones. Uh, there will be two readings this morning, one from Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17 through 26, and Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4 through 8. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave, it all, must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, all his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one hand with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jessica. We are uh, back in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. We've been uh, walking our way through this book slowly but surely these last few weeks together. Uh, just a reminder to you that there is a, an outline on the back of your bulletin if that is helpful for you to follow along. There's a lot of points and sub-points sub this morning. I will try very hard to give you a very clear roadmap uh, of where we're going. Um, most of them are in the outline. Those questions to me rather than raise your hand. Anyhow, here we are, book of Ecclesiastes, and here's what's going on. The teacher has undertaken a project to find meaning in life, in a life that is lived, what he calls, under the sun. And what he means by that is, in a world where there is no God, in a world where there is no overarching spiritual reality behind the physical reality that we 
we experience and live in each day, if there is no supernatural, all-powerful being behind this universe that dictates the purpose of this universe, what makes life worth living? How do you find meaning in life? Because if there is no objective meaning, that means we have to make up our own meaning. There's a, a subjective purpose to existence that we have to discover on our own. And so he has undertaken this journey to discover where that meaning could come from. And last week we saw that, uh, that he, 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 he experimented with finding purpose and meaning in pleasure. Basically, this is the kind of worldview that says, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And some of you may be familiar with that uh, phrase. That's actually a biblical phrase. Well, sort of a biblical phrase. It's, it's the combination of two biblical phrases put together. But anyhow, it comes from the Bible. Uh, and people have tried to find their meaning that way, but he has discovered that that actually doesn't work because, he says, human beings have an endless need for pleasure and an endless longing for pleasure because we were created, as he says, with eternity in our hearts, meaning endlessness. We have a, a longing for a, a satisfaction of our desires that we simply cannot find satisfied in infinite. So that's where, where we were last week. Basically, your heart is a big black hole. If you didn't know that, now you do. Today, we're going to look at another means by which the teacher sought out meaning and purpose. And it's a pretty common one in our culture as well, just like the last one was. And it's this, it's finding meaning and purpose in our work, in our labor, now, let me just say, uh, by way of introduction or pre-introduction, if I can call it that, um, the subject of work and vocation is a, is a massive one. It's a huge one, okay? And, um, and there's f it, 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 it involves a lot more than just your job, what you do to earn a paycheck. In fact, Scripture has a lot to say about work, what work is, and, and why we ought to do it. It has a whole philosophy or theology of work, um, and we can't get into all of that. But let me just say this, according to uh, the book of Genesis, which describes the creation of the universe, the creation of reality itself, God embedded reality with work, with the need for work, and the work that human beings were tasked with is good. It's inherently good. It's inherently pleasing to God. There is goodness in the work that we do. Adam was created and put in this garden for the purpose we discover in Genesis 2, to care for it and tend it. He was put in the garden to cultivate it. What that means is, is that, that he was placed there to bring out the latent potential in the created order he finds himself in. He was, he was put there to bring the order to the chaos, to, to, to bring structure to, to this garden so that it would flourish and bring out the potential that it had as a garden. And therefore, uh, what it was supposed to produce was meant to benefit human flourishing, or it was, it was meant to benefit humankind and produce human flourishing. So work 
was designed to be good for society as a whole, for all of us together. In other, what I'm trying to say is, every individual's work, the, the labors that every individual does, is meant to contribute to the flourishing of the whole. Do you get what I'm saying? Can I get an amen? All right, good. Just feeling charismatic right now. All right, um, good. Okay, so that's... That's a, I'm giving you like a totally simplistic explanation of a, of a, of a biblical theology of work. But, but what I'm trying to say is ultimately our work was meant to glorify God and benefit us. Those two things work together. What we're talking about this morning, though, is we're talking about what work has become for human beings. And it's kind of strange. And if you look at our culture, there's this paradox at work <laughs> in our culture right now. Oh, that's just the first of many I have planned. No, I'm kidding. Um, like, on the one hand, the message our culture gives us about work is that work, frankly, sucks. Work is a burden that we undergo simply for the purpose of paying our bills. You work to live, right? TGIF, right? That's what people say when 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon hits. They say, thank God it's Friday. Uh, I, you don't see it so much on TV anymore, but I remember uh, when I was younger, there was a TV commercial call, uh, for something called Freedom 55, and the idea was is that if you planned for retirement properly, you could knock 10 years off that retirement date. You could get out of the workforce sooner rather than later because, uh, duh, everybody wants out of the work- workforce, right, because it's a rat race. So on the one hand, work kind of sucks. So to use a, 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 a musical explanation once again or illustration... Anybody here ever heard of the band Loverboy? Yeah? Yeah. Everybody's working for the weekend, right? That's one perspective on work that our culture perpetuates. But at the very same time, strangely enough, strangely enough, our culture also invests a tremendous amount of importance in our work. We put a huge amount of importance in our work because our identity is often very much caught up in what we do. I remember a number of years ago, a a, a friend of mine, a guy I know very well, after many, many years of being quite successful in the workforce, he lost his job. And he said it was mind-bogglingly disorienting for him. He said, I didn't know who I was because he had been a professional for many, many years, worked in a white-collar world, and he had done a, a certain type of work in that white-collar world. And when he lost that job, he, he said, I, don't really, I didn't really know who I was. And so this is this weird combination in our culture where, where work is a curse and an idol at the same time. What's up with that? The teacher in Ecclesiastes is going to help us unravel this mystery, if I can call it that. Uh, and he's going to do this. He's going to explain to us uh, the hope of work, how we, how we put a tremendous amount of hope in our work. He's going to uh, explain to us the burden of work, where this burden comes from, and then he's going to show us the path to find the pleasure of work. Those are the three things that he's going to, to show us this morning. So let's go to work. Boom, number two. First of all, the hope of work. The teacher expresses, us, expresses for us how we, we put a tremendous amount of hope in our work. And the first thing, he, what he's going to do is he's going to show us how each and every one of these hopes that we, we lay upon our work is dashed. 
okay? It doesn't actually happen. But the first one is, is our hope for satisfaction. You hear it all the time. You need to find a work that is fulfilling, right? You got to find what are you passionate about? What do you love? And you're supposed to go after it and do that because you spend so much time at work, you obviously don't want to waste your time doing something that doesn't excite you and doesn't get your motor running. And so you got to work really, really hard at finding the passion of your life and pursue that with all your, all your gusto. And that sounds good. And that actually, on, on one level, it makes sense. But listen to what the teacher says in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 2. He said, What does man get for all the toil and anxious striving from which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. He says, At the end of the day, you can pursue your passion and and work really hard at it, but the reality is, is that you don't end up with satisfaction at the end end of your working life. You end up with pain, and you end up with grief. And there's some truth to that, right? I mean, if you work in a physical job, people who do physical labor, you know that that your work wears out your body, right? Pretty, Pretty simple. Physical work does that, but if you don't do physical work, you also know very well that that work wears out your body and wears on your soul just because of the stress of work, the stress of the workplace, of the tasks that are before you, or maybe the uh, colleagues that you're working with, you know, they put a lot of strain and stress on you because they're difficult people, or maybe your boss is a very, very demanding boss, and, or maybe the shareholders are, are wanting, a, 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 you know, a, a major profit for the, their investment, whatever the case, it, it creates this stress in your life. And not on top of that, it, it gives you grief. Work gives you a tremendous amount of grief, and it does that in two ways. First of all, it gives you grief because think about what what working life is all about. It's basically about evaluation. If you work in the service industry, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your bread and butter is made on how pleased the customer is with uh, with your product or with your service. And so you're constantly being evaluated and that creates a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety for people. Maybe you were, you know, I've always, I've always been amazed by salespeople. Salespeople are the most amazing people in the world because they, they live with rejection constantly, right? Especially the people who do like telephone sales. Think about it, that's a tough gig. Ring, 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 1-800-something-something. I don't recognize that number. I know what's coming. Hello? Hello, may I Mr. speak to Mr. Vanden Brinkalonk? They always get my name wrong. Yeah, this is Mr. Vandenbrink. Well, I'd like to talk to you about X. And then you just want to go, forget it, right? And I'll admit, sometimes I do that to people when I'm cranky and grumpy. And sometimes you do that to people too. You hang up on those salespeople. But there are people on the other end of that line who are just trying to make a living. And they're getting rejected all the time. But it's not just them, it's all of us. If you don't work in the service industry, you've got an employer who's watching your performance that makes you, uh, makes you nervous and makes you concerned about, uh, about the, the, the um, stability of your job, for example, right? Um, but there's a second way that, uh, that we are disappointed by our work or that we get grief from our work, and that is that work is frustrating, right? You know, your plans 
in your work are unrealized. You know, you, you have grand plans. I, I, I know this as a church planter. You thought things were going to go this way, and you put your time and energy into that, and, you know, plans are not unfolding the way you expected. And you've probably had that with your job as well. And, and that's, this, is, this is a result of the fall. This is something we shouldn't be surprised by because G, God said to Adam, he said, when you work the land, it's going to produce thistles for you. You're going to be trying to get pumpkins or tomatoes or, or flowers or something, and it's going to give you thistles, and you're going to find that very frustrating. So the, the work that you do is always going to have this kind of this, this pushback against it, this, this sort of unseen force that is working against your your agenda, and you need to be aware of that. And the teacher, he recognizes that because he says, look, work is frustrating. That's why even at night, he says, my mind is not at rest. Some of you go to bed every night worrying about your work, worrying about will there be work the next day, or how to accomplish the next task that is before you. Or how will you handle that difficult customer or that, that, that hard meeting or, or get through that massive task list? Or maybe you're worried about whether or not you'll have a job at all tomorrow or whether you should keep the job you have. Okay, so we put a lot of hope that uh, work will satisfy us and here are reasons that it won't, but it's, it's not just that, it gets worse. We also put uh, into our work a hope for recognition. We want from our work recognition. Now, this is where the teacher really starts showing his incredible insight. Listen to what he says from chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Now, listen. The teacher actually paints a picture of an extremely successful businessman. All right? So whoever this guy was, he was very good at what he did. And he was a success. But the problem was, and that, sorry, what that meant is, is that this guy had respect. He had recognition. He had uh, uh, approval from a certain segment of society. But what the teacher is showing him and showing us is that it's not the kind of recognition that matters. He had what you could call recognition from afar, but he didn't have recognition from close by. It says he has no son. It says he has no brother. In other words, it's painting a picture of a man who has made it to the top of his career in some sense, but he has no close relationships as a result. He's all alone. And what he starts thinking about is, is he's like, wow, the kind of respect that I'm getting, that's not really the respect that matters. At the end of the day, who cares if I am a, a, a tremendous business respect, if my kids don't respect me, if I don't have someone to share my life with, a family member, a, a, a spouse, someone uh, close to me that, that respects me and cherishes me, then I don't really care. I can tell you myself, look, my kids don't really care whether I am a successful preacher or not. Now, granted, they don't want to sit through a lousy sermon. I get that. Who does, right? And 
they probably take a very minor, little, tiny bit of pleasure in someone saying, hey, your dad, that was a good sermon he preached. You know, probably. But frankly, really, they don't care. What they care is, am I a good dad? What they care about is, do I have an interest in their lives? What they really care about is, am I, am I doing the hard work of focusing on my family and nurturing my family and providing for my family? That's what they really care about, okay? What I'm trying to say is, if you're a great engineer and you're a great lawyer and you're a great computer technologist or you're a great plumber or you're a great photographer or you're a great, let me just, what else do I see out here? <laughs> if you're great at that, but you're a workaholic, because let's face it, look, little secret, you young people who are, I see a bunch of Redeemer students, for example, you young people who are embarking on your career, I can tell you the key to success in your career, hard work. If you are willing to sacrifice your family, if you are willing to sacrifice your church, if you are willing to sacrifice basically your soul for your job, I promise you, you can be a success. At the end of the day, if you can put in more hours than the next guy and accomplish more than the next guy or gal, you can be a success. But, you know, the modern rock musicians are right. You do that, you end up with nothing. You're like, modern rock musician? What are you talking about? Cats in the Cradle, you know that song? You, how many of you were thinking of that song while I was describing this, Right? When are you coming home, son? I don't know when, but we'll have a good time then, right? There's a story, for, okay, for anybody under like 75, it's a song about a man who is too busy to spend any time with his son. And by the end of the song, he's calling, now he's retired and old, and he's calling his son and saying, hey, come spend time with me, and his son is too busy to spend time with him, and he's all alone. He's got nothing. That's it, man. And here's the thing, everybody knows that. Here's why you need a savior, okay? Everybody knows that, but they do it anyway. You know it. You all know you can't take it with you, blah, blah, blah. But we do it anyway. Why? You'll have to wait for the answer. Because there's one more thing we hope for that I want to describe first. We hope... And it's another good thing, and this is a funny thing, is it's all good things, okay? It's all good things. We're hoping that through our work, we will make a contribution, we will make an impact, we will make a difference, right? That will be useful to the world, and that's good, and we should be pursuing that. But then again, the teacher tells us, ultimately, that's meaningless as well. He says in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to, to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Basically what he's saying is this. When you die, everything that you built will be gone. Now, if what you die goes to a fool, it'll be gone really quickly because <laughs> they'll dismantle it. If when you die, everything you've got goes to someone who's wise, it'll just die more slowly or maybe quickly. 
On the one hand, it'll die quickly because that person is wise and smart and, and everybody will be like, man, they're awesome and they'll forget you. But on the other hand, maybe they're just a wise manager and they're doing a good job with, with everything that you've built and all that means is, is that your company or your legacy will fade away a little slower, but it'll fade in the end anyway. You know, you see this, this is hard for people to, you, this is hard, okay, this is hard for people to accept. Uh, I have seen it happen where a business is being transferred from one generation to the next generation. And the one generation that built it, they can't let go. They just can't. They say they're letting go, but they show up at the office every day anyway. They've got seven or eight very important pieces of information and input to give to the next generation as they're, as they're planning to make changes. But the reality is, is that what you build in this world and what I build in this world will eventually fade away. Like, look at Nortel, RIM, Sears just recently. Or what about those that are so-called too big to fail? People thought Kodak was too big to, to fail. I mean, they practically invented photography. It doesn't exist anymore. And that's within 100 years. But civilization has lasted a lot longer than that. The point is, there, there was a poet. I heard the story of a poet who on his, on his um, headstone, his epitaph read, I only ever plowed water. Wow, is that a powerful image, eh? I only ever plowed water. I'm working hard plowing and I look behind me and it just closes up behind me. It's, the point is this. Ultimately, he says, nobody on their own is going to make a lasting impact. And yet, why are we hoping for all these things in our work? Why are we emphasizing it so much? Why do we do this? And the teacher, this is uh, point two, the burden of work. The teacher suggests the answer in chapter four. In verse four, he says this, I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. He mentions envy as the reason for this, this burden that we have put upon us through our work. And it's, it's strange, eh? Because maybe you're sitting here and you're like, envy, jealousy. I'm not working because I'm jealous of anybody. I'm just, I'm not super ambitious or whatever. I'm just, I'm just working to survive. I'm just working to make ends meet or provide for my family or something. But you got to understand, the teacher is talking about something underneath when he describes this envy. He says there's a drivenness in us. When we invest this kind of importance in our work, he's saying that we're not just trying to build a life. We're trying to build a self. Hear me out. You meet someone new. What's the second or third question you ask? I know anybody you know, and what do you do? Okay, we're at like four. Fourth question. And now, if you have a very prestigious job in our culture, and I'll let you define what those prestigious jobs are, you say, well, I do this, and you're quite happy to tell other people what you do because it feels good to tell them what you do. 
And if you don't have a, a so-called prestigious job, you might be a little bit embarrassed about your job, and you, you'll use language, and I've heard people use this kind of language. You might say something like, I'm just a, oh, I just do this. And you kind of downplay it, and you try to minimize it, and you try to maybe even steer the conversation away from it. And that's because in our culture today, your work justifies you. People work in, in, in a sense to say, look, I am as good as you. The envy, keeping up with the Joneses is not about, oh, I really like that they have a hot tub and I want a hot tub too, or I really like that they got new bikes and so I want new bikes too. Keeping up with the Joneses isn't about stuff. It's not about your net worth. It's about your self-worth. It's about saying, I have a right to be here as much as you have a right to be here. I matter as much as you do. I am as good as you are. You see this in very successful families. You have a high-achieving family, and they have three kids. And kid one goes off and gets a PhD in blah, blah, blah. Kid two goes off and gets a PhD in blah, blah, blah. And kid three says, I'm going to dig ditches. And everybody goes, yeah, you know, kid three. I just didn't quite, like, what's up with that? Didn't quite get there. Kind of, kind of out of step with the rest of the family. And if nobody else says it to the kid, the kid sure feels it themselves. They will describe themselves as the black sheep of the family or, ha, 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 you know, I'm the screw up or, ha, 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 you know, we don't know if I'm adopted or, ha, 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 ha. They say whatever joke they can to kind of minimize the fact that they're just different. But they're different in a way, okay, in a way that betrays that they don't have the success, that they're not as good. Now, the teacher says this kind of approach, this burden of work where we are trying to build a self on our work, he says that will lead, potentially anyway, to two different kind of ways of operating. And the one we talked about already, the verse 8 guy, that's overwork. So the way you deal with this attempt to build a self is you overwork. And I, 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 got, I got examples of this up the wazoo. I don't know where the wazoo is, but I've got examples all the way up it. And the most powerful example is actually a personal example, my own father. So my own father left his home when he was 16 years old. He came to Canada and he basically didn't know a soul. He had a bad relationship with his stepfather who told him he would amount to basically nothing. And he spent the next 40 years of his life working himself to the bone so that he could one day go back and prove to that man how wrong he was. I'm allowed to share that example. He said I'm allowed to. And it took him a long time to be able to enjoy a vacation and be able to lay it on the table and say to that man, you were wrong. Some of you know Sidney Pollock. He was a, a very, very successful filmmaker. And he was dying of cancer, and as he was dying of cancer, he wouldn't stop working, and his family begged him to stop working because they didn't know how much time he had left with them. And they said, please, stop working. We want to spend a little more time with you. In a very candid interview, he admitted, he said, you know, every time I finish a film, I feel that I've earned my stay for another year. When you put that kind of burden on work, you can be that kind of person, the overworker, the the. The, the shocking thing is, is that that's not the only thing that can happen. The other thing is, is that it can lead to underwork, believe it or not. In verse 5, it says, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. And he's talking about slothfulness, laziness, people who 
just don't get out there and, and, and put the effort in. But he's not just saying laziness. There's, there's something underneath it. If you're find, finding identity in your work, if it's so important for you to, to see your, your worth in what you do, sometimes that burden becomes so big that you are so terrified of failing at it that you won't even t- attempt it. You know, some of you, you know, you know, perfectionists, some people are perfectionists. Maybe you're not a perfectionist in all areas, but maybe you're a perfectionist in, in one area. And one of the problems with perfectionism is, is that maybe you just never start. You just can't start because it's got to be perfect, and you can't imagine it ever being perfect, so you never get going in the first place. It's not that you're a lazy person. It's that you're, you're, you're stuck, because you're putting such a burden on this thing. Or you say, I'm just no good at anything anyway, so you don't bother. Or how about this? You won't take a job that you think is beneath you. I'm too good for that job. Because you do put so much emphasis on what you do as a source of your identity that, well, if I do that, where's the dignity in that? Where's the worth in that? It's below me. Ha, man, complicated, eh? But as I said before, this is not the design. This is not what God meant for work. Work was meant to be enjoyable and fulfilling. And I'm talking about menial menial tasks as well as the more grand projects that we, that we can undertake. Because work was never meant to be self-defining or self-serving. It was meant to be world-serving, you see? and world-affirming. All kinds of work was meant to be that way. And the teacher knew this. He knew this underneath it all. That's why, isn't it strange? And in, in verse 17, he's like, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. And he goes on and on and on and on. And then all of a sudden, in verse 24, he says, a man can do nothing better, better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. And there's this flip. Well, does work, is work lousy or is work good? And you've got to keep reading to understand what he's saying. We're on the last point, I think. The pleasure of work, yeah. He says, man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Listen to this. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? See, he's uncovering the way that work gets transformed so that it can be a pleasure and not a burden. And there's three things he, he, he describes here. Well, there's two that he describes here, and I've got to add one more, and I'll explain why when I do. The first thing is, he says, in order for work to be transformed, three things for it to go from burden to pleasure. The first one is to see that it is from the hand of God. What he means by that, that's verse 24, right? This too, I see, is from the hand of God. And what he means by that is, is you need to understand that the pleasure that comes from doing your work well is a gift from God. In other words, he's gotta, he says you've got you to gotta change your thinking. Not f- you can't find the thing that you want from work in work. It's a gift. Or let me put it another way. You can't work to make your work more satisfying. You've got to accept that as a gift from God. And once you realize this, you begin to release work from that burden that you have placed on it in your life. 
But that's just the first step. So the first step is you got to realize that the work that you do is not going to bring the satisfaction from you. The satisfaction that you're going to find in your work is going to be a gift from God. Okay, that's step one. It sounds weird, but it'll, it'll fit if we go to step two and step three. Here's step two. Verse 25, he says this. Without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom knowledge, and happiness. The teacher is saying you need to connect your work to the giver of the gift. So you can't just see see the pleasure that you get from God as a gift. You have to see the work itself, the work that you're doing, as something you do in response to the gift giver. There's a lot I didn't say about work in in this sermon. One thing I did mention was this. Work is employing your talents or your gifts or your skills or your abilities to serve others and to serve the world, right? Or another way of putting that is, is that through your work, through your vocation, you actually fulfill the two great commands of God. Through your work, when you recognize that satisfaction in your work comes from God as a gift, as you do it as an offering to Him, you love God and you love your neighbor. You please him and you please others. So for example, if you're a truck driver and you go to work saying, it is my job to get this material from point A to point B safely so other people on the roads are safe as well and I get that they're on time and it's not damaged and I, I provide a, a, a good service to my customer so that at the end of our exchange, they leave happier rather than sadder or angrier or whatever, that that pleases God and that improves the day of my neighbor, the person that I'm working with. That is no small thing. I think I mentioned it last week about Jordan Peterson, who's not by any stretch of the imagination a Christian. He has put his finger on something hugely important. He said if everybody would take that attitude, what he called the Christian work ethic, if, they, if everybody in the world, think about it, if everybody in the world actually grabbed onto the Christian work ethic, no matter what you did, you're a crossing guard, you're a painter, you're a florist, you're a CEO of a multinational company. If you actually took the Christian work ethic and said, God created this work for me to serve others and to bless his name, what would that do to the world? What would that do to the world? It would utterly transform the world. This is no small thing, okay? It may seem small if you're a cashier in a grocery store and you have the opportunity to make the two minutes at the cash register with your customer a positive experience rather than a negative experience. You think that that's a small thing, but if you multiply that by seven billion people, what's the ripple effect? Work is no longer than a meaningless drudgery to get a paycheck. But that flip, that switch, needs one more step. Step three, this this has to happen. It's critical. You gotta look at yourself and look at your work through the lens of the gospel. Here's why. See, we said that we invest so much into our work to create for us a sense of worth and a sense of identity, etc. Well, that's because of the fall. 
According to Scripture, when we were created by God at the very beginning, we had all of that. We had it in relationship with God. We knew we were loved. We knew we were accepted. We knew we had good work to do. We were living in paradise, and we were completely secure in the work that God had called us to do. But then when we chose to rebel against his loving authority and and decide for ourselves we were going to, to live our lives our way, we were banished from his presence. And ever since then, we went to work. But we went to work in a very different way. We created music, we built businesses, we went into the trades, we created art. Why? To do what Judith Shulovitz, a writer for the New York Times, once put majestically, in my opinion. She said, We did it to quiet the eternal inner murmur of self reproach. To quiet the voice that says, You are no good, you don't matter, you don't measure up. And nobody cares whether you're here or not. But then along comes Jesus Christ. And the gospel is that Jesus says, I came to all of you who are weary and are burdened by your work. And I came to give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. What is he saying? He's talking about the work under the work. He's talking about your, your, your attempts to justify yourself through your success. And he's saying that, that you're tired not because you were sh- at the, working on the end of a shovel for nine hours today. That's not the tiredness I'm talking about. I'm talking about living on the treadmill where you're constantly trying to make the grade and measure up so that whomever you have invested with, this, with this, this sense of authority in your life will finally bestow upon you the blessing that you so desperately long for. And he says, I came to do that for you. He cried on the cross while he hung there. It is finished. He did the work under the work for you. Everything that was needed to be done so that God could delight in you, he did it for you. And he offers you the deep rest that your soul craves so desperately. That's why he says, come to me, you who are weary. And that ultimately transforms your work. You know, in verse 5, it says something interesting. It says the, nope, not verse 5, verse 6, last thing. It says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. Some of you are in a job or a career or whatever, that doesn't really fit you. You don't find it fulfilling. You don't find it satisfying. You're not really using your gifts or your interests at all that, all that uh, well. But it pays well. And it does provide that sense of recognition because people say, oh, you do that? Oh, that's cool. And, you know, you get to go to good parties. I had a friend, I'm not, she didn't go to work for RIM for this purpose, but in a crazy way, she got a job at RIM, and this was at the height of RIM's power, okay? And, and she, could, she could tell, oh, you work for RIM? Yeah? Oh, like, what's that like? Well, actually, it is pretty cool. I mean, when your corporate party is, they, they, they rent out the Rogers Center, and you have you 2 come play for you, you're kind of all that. 
But what she came to realize is, is that this isn't my life. Being a marketing director for a RIM, that's not what I'm called to do. And, and it was very hard to walk away. I mean, it turns out it was probably smart to walk away. But at the time, it didn't look like a very good idea to walk away from something like that. But you see, when work is transformed in your mind, you're not a slave to your work. And you can seek to pursue what God is calling you to do and not be a slave to all those promises that work can sometimes, in an empty way, lay out before you. You can take it or leave it. Hmm. The question of work. That's all I have to say. Let's pray. Father, help us to... We've just scratched the surface about work and vocation and all that stuff. There's so much more to say, but... We've gone at kind of the heart of the problem, which is basically our self-centered hearts that are looking for our meaning and identity in the wrong places. Help us to be freed from the idol that work often is so that we can enjoy our work and do it for your glory, to please you, to bless the world. Give us that peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.